Welcome to the Five By, the socially distant board game review podcast that never forgets to wear a mask. In this episode, Ruth visits the land that time forgot with Draftosaurus. I know what it means to miss New Orleans with Big Easy Busking. Meepa Lady feels the power of Power Grid, and Christy explores the cliffs of Santorini. But first, Ruel serves us a glass of chai. Enjoy! As a tea merchant hoping to sell the most valuable teas in the land, you'll visit the market and the pantry to gather the ingredients needed to brew customers' orders. Add mint, lemon, and other flavors to your base tea, whether it's green, black, or oolong, and keep your customers satisfied before they're tempted by the other tea houses in the neighborhood. Friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Chai, a game by Dan and Connie Kazmaier, with art by Sahana Vij and Mary Hasdick. Chai was published in 2018 by Steeped Games, who sent me a copy. In Chai, up to five players take on the roles of tea merchants attempting to make the perfect tea for their customers. Each customer's order has a different combination of base tea, flavors, and or pantry items that you must collect in order to serve them. On your turn, perform one of three actions. You may visit the market to gain three coins and purchase as many flavors as you can afford to fit into your tea house. Or, go to the pantry and collect three items that some teas need, such as honey, vanilla, or spices. Finally, you can choose to reserve a customer order and perform a special ability. After your one action, you may fill an order by turning in the base tea, flavors, and or pantry items, then taking that customer card and placing it face down beside your tea house. Don't forget to collect your tip! When orders equal to the number of players have been completed, the round is over, followed by some minor cleanup. After five rounds, the game is over, and the player with the most points on their customer order cards wins. As we all deal with our new reality of physical distancing and the stress that comes with living in these times, I'm thankful for games like Chai that are easy to get to the table. Its low rules overhead and short playtime make it a solid choice as part of a Sunday afternoon of rest and relaxation. The production value in the deluxe version is absolutely stunning, from the colorful and vibrant artwork to the gorgeous Azul-like flavor tiles. Throw in the playmat and you have table presence for days. Chai is a light and breezy gateway-style game, perfect for those times when you're not in the mood for a brain-burning Euro game. The game is set collection at its heart, with a fun little market mechanism. The market is made up of three rows of randomly chosen flavor tiles. The rows are broken up into columns of various prices, from 1 to 3. You can buy a flavor tile from the market, and if flavors are adjacent to each other, then you can buy them for one price, then they'll slide to the left after every purchase. This little puzzle was my favorite part of the game. Since you can buy as many tiles as you can afford, if you time your buys just right, flavors will slide over and become adjacent, allowing you to collect more tiles in a single purchase. It's a great feeling when you buy something for one coin, then see the other tiles slide over and connect with each other, giving you more bang for your buck. The smooth and simple turn structure ties in neatly with the theme. You gather ingredients, then possibly fill a customer order. Whenever someone fills the last order of the round, a new special ability is drawn. These range from giving you bonus items to the ability to pay one less ingredient when filling an order. The player interaction in Chai is indirect. You can hate draft flavor tiles or pantry ingredients, or fill an order right from underneath an opponent's nose if they're not paying attention. And while you may get hosed by the random draw of cards that gives you nothing that can be completed quickly while your opponents are filling orders left and right, the game plays so fast that you can probably play a rematch afterwards. My wife and I play two-player games in about 20 minutes. There are two solo variants included in the back of the rulebook, one of which is a cooperative version that can be soloed, 
as well as a third solo game included in the deluxe version that uses dice to determine an AI's turn. Unfortunately, none of them are explained all that well, and I've had to dig around BGG and Facebook to find answers to my questions. Ultimately, the one I've enjoyed playing is the straightforward solo game, where you take 10 turns in an attempt to score as many points as possible. I've made it easily to the next to highest ranking of Master, but just can't quite get over the hump. I'm looking forward to the upcoming expansion, High T. The game's website promises variable player powers for each tea house, which seems like it should add some depth to the base game, both solo and multiplayer. When I first saw Chai at Dice Tower West earlier this year, I was hoping for something a little heavier on the strategy side. However, after playing Chai a few times with my family, I realized that this was a keeper. It's like an indie version of family-friendly titles that bigger companies put out to much more acclaim. Like a good cup of tea, Chai is easy to take in and never tries to be more than what it is. It's a simple pleasure, one enhanced by its relaxed gameplay and top-notch production. Thanks to Steep Games for the copy of Chai. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 Byte. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here, taking a break from reading the excellent Jurassic Park Updates Twitter account to talk to you about gaming. And so, since it's on my mind, if you're looking to build a dinosaur park, might I suggest doing so at the game table using delightfully dinosaur-shaped meeples and needing only about 15 minutes to finish. Designed by the team of Antoine Bauza, Corentin Lebrat, Ludovic Montblanc, and Theo Riviere, and Kana's 2019 release Draftosaurus lets anywhere from 2 to 5 players build their own dino attraction. Although I will say that player limit is a little flexible, since using two copies of the game, I was part of a 12-player game, with a couple of teams thrown in there. As its name suggests, Draftosaurus is a drafting game. Each player is going to grab a handful of six dinosaur meeples to start the game, each type of dinosaur distinguished by shape and color. The round starts with the active player rolling a die that determines how everybody else at the table is going to have to place their dinosaur. And then everyone selects the dinosaur they're going to keep out of their hand. Everyone then reveals their chosen piece and adds it to their park, with everybody but the active player keeping the die roll in mind, and the active player just picking wherever they want to play. Then everyone passes the rest of their handful of ancient lizards to their neighbor, and receives a new selection from which to draft. The die moves around the table to designate a new active player, and play continues until everyone has placed a total of 12 dinosaurs into their park, with a short break after round 6 to pull a new handful to draft from. Draftosaurus's park boards are double-sided, and each side has its own set of pens that can only be filled in particular ways to score. Some dinosaur pens want everything inside to be of the same species, while others are looking for variety. Some pens are looking for pairs, triples, and some are looking for even more exotic combinations. Players can choose which of the two sides of the board to play for a quick 15-minute game, or play two rounds in order to use both sides, since after all, in this way the game still only takes 30 minutes, so it doesn't lose that short and sweet descriptor that comes to mind every time I think of it. In addition to playing super quickly, Draftosaurus also takes under 5 minutes to teach, so it's a great game to introduce to new gamers, to families, or to your group while waiting on others to join. It's also a really amazing game for playing in public. We had a great time once at a bottle shop, for example, chatting over our beers and dinosaur selections. The placement choices in the game are restrictive enough to make things tricky, 
but simple enough to let players enjoy hanging out together and still not lose track of what's going on in the game. And well, the game is just so much fun, especially when you have players who cheer or groan when the die results are revealed, or good-naturedly grumble at the choice of dinosaurs they've just been handed. This is a drafting game, but unusually it does come with two-player roles. But I will say it's fine at two, but it really shines with more, mainly due to that die roll and the reactions it elicits. In a two-player game, rolling the die only affects your opponent, which just isn't as exciting. Plus, with more players, you get to see more handfuls of dinosaurs on each turn, so you get more interesting choices and more surprises instead of just passing the same few dinosaurs back and forth. And speaking of those handfuls of dinosaurs, they can be a little tricky to secretly pass, which is my one kind of niggly complaint with the game. I've seen some players are using draw bags or bit bowls to hold each hand of dinos as it moves around the table, and that's actually something I'm looking to add to my copy so that people don't end up just putting the dinosaurs down in full view of everyone. But to be fair, Draftosaurus is a fun, quick experience in which your players should be able to just ignore that they might have caught a glimpse of red in someone's hand and know that some T-Rexes are coming their way. After all, you could also cherry-pick your starting hand by feel in order to gain an advantage since the dinosaurs are all shaped differently. But if you're going to do that to gain an advantage in Draftosaurus, well, maybe you should be playing something else. The art in the game is by Jihao Eva Gao and Vipen Alex Jacob, and it's bright and cheerful. And once your park starts to fill up with all those colorful meeples, it's a really eye-catching game that isn't just for kids. In fact, some of the scoring in the game is actually a little more complicated to optimize than you might expect based on a quick glance or a look at the playtime. Honestly, I've considered putting together a score pad for the game to make it faster and easier for us adults to score, especially if I'm going to be adding drawbacks to my game anyway. You see, Draftosaurus is a game that I consider worth taking the time and the resources to upgrade, and so I highly recommend jumping in if you ever get offered the chance to play. After all, the time commitment of a game of Draftosaurus is low, and you get to put together a dinosaur theme park, so what do you have to lose? Give it a quick try, and let me know what you think of this super sweet, super short game. You can find me on Twitter at Ruth, that's an R, Foros, and an F. Thanks for listening. Big Easy Busking is a game about music. You play a group of buskers, or street musicians. Your goal is to make the most money by doing the best job of entertaining the crowds on the streets of New Orleans. And if you know anything about me, you know I backed this game on day one when it hit Kickstarter last year. Designed by Joshua Mills and published in 2020 by Weird Giraffe Games, Big Easy Busking has area control at its core, but with such a novel approach that calling it that almost feels like diminishing the game. Each player has a supply of tokens that are assigned to one of three musicians, saxophone, drums, and trumpet, and represent their energy or ability to play. You start with a small number of song cards in your hand and can learn new songs as you go. You play a song card to a crowd using energy tokens from your musicians. When a song is finished, you leave all or just some of the tokens on the card. You can then tip your musicians to bring their energy levels back up, and then they're ready to play again. At the end of each round, the player with the most energy tokens on each card gets money, and all players with a minimum number of tokens on that card gets a smaller amount of money. There's no real player interaction in Big Easy Busking, no way to take tokens away from other players or make things harder for them. Which I prefer. I dislike the mean-spirited feel of many area control games. This game didn't feel like multiplayer solitaire to me, though, because you're all playing to the same crowds. 
What you do is very dependent on what your opponents just did and what you think they're going to do next. But if you like a lot of take that in your games, you won't find it here. I've greatly enjoyed learning the rhythm of Big Easy Busking. The songs require different amounts of energy, and there was an incredibly satisfying moment when I realized I could play the song cards that needed the most tokens first, but not leave all the tokens on the card. Instead, keep pulling them back so I could keep going, playing smaller and smaller songs wherever I needed to drop another token or two. I love that feeling when the pieces snap into place and you think, oh, I know what to do here. Right now, I can only play in-person games with two people, and I think Big Easy Busking is better with more than two. But it does have a solo variant that I enjoy very much. You play against an automated robot player, and there are three different robots plus multiple difficulty levels to keep it interesting. The robots each have different goals. One tries to match the mood of each crowd. Another tries to meet the minimum threshold in all crowds. The third tries to follow whatever you do. I found that doing well solo required a different approach than playing against other people, which is generally a good sign in a solo variant. I will say, though, that the first time I played solo, I misread the rules and made the game extremely difficult for myself. It was a weird game that went from, oh, this is hard, to how does anyone ever win this, to, oh, it's actually not that bad and maybe I should go up a difficulty level. Big Easy Busking does a good job of integrating the theme into the mechanisms. Tipping, for instance. It costs you money and makes your musicians happy so they have more energy for the next performance. Learning songs cost energy, except the standards, which cost money to play. Because they're standards, everyone knows them and you have to pay a royalty. Each song card has a title which isn't a real song, but sounds so much like a real New Orleans jazz song. In every game, I have fun looking at the song titles and thinking about what that song would sound like. This song was a bit racy in the 1920s, but is tame almost to the point of endearing now. But that song was a rude blues that is still so raunchy today that you better be careful what neighborhood you play it in. The art by Adrian Azell and Andrew Thompson is bright and vibrant and makes heavy use of the traditional New Orleans Mardi Gras colors. It really helps to evoke the setting. And I appreciate that the cards depict musicians and crowds who are mostly black. It's a nice nod to the past and present of New Orleans, whose black performers and composers were so central to the creation and evolution of both jazz and blues. The art presents my only real caveat with Big Easy Busking. It's so bright and colorful that it can be difficult to distinguish the tokens when they're laying on those very colorful cards. It's okay in person when you have decent light, but I played a game of Big Easy Busking on Tabletop Simulator, and in that format, the tokens were very difficult to see. We ended up laying the tokens above each card instead of on it, and that helped. But to be honest, that game was a big part of my decision to never use Tabletop Simulator again if I could help it. It wasn't all about the tokens, but that was part of it. I hope that in future printings, they'll adjust the components so there's more contrast between the tokens and the cards. New Orleans is one of my favorite cities to visit. One of my best vacations ever was a solo cross-country road trip where I stopped for a couple of days in New Orleans. I don't even do that much there. I just love walking around the city, weaving in and out of the crowds, looking at the architecture, listening to the buskers that seem to be on every corner. These days, it seems like a beautiful dream from another life. With everything that's going on, it's a real treat to have a light, fun game that reminds me of that time. And that's Big Easy Busking. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you want to chat about King Oliver and Johnny Dodds, then I really want to hear from you. I'm not kidding. If you're into board games and 1920s jazz, get in touch with me. We should know each other. The phrase I'm a dollar short pretty much encapsulates the game Power Grid. 
released in 2004 by Rio Grande Games and designed by Friedman Fries, Power Grid is a classic 2-6 player route building game where you're bidding on power plants in order to power the most cities. This is probably one of the oldest games I have in my collection. When I first dove into the hobby and swam a bit past the gateway games, the rules of the game aren't very hard to learn, but managing your money and resources in a fluctuating market requires some strategic know-how. Each base game of Power Grid comes with a double-sided board, the United States and Germany, and a free lesson on the geography of a European country. The Power Grid system has since released many, many more maps. A quick glance on BGG shows about a dozen different countries, all the games adhering to the Power Grid system with slight rules variations. There are three phases for the whole game, which consists of player rounds. In each round, you bid on power plants, buy resources, build houses and cities to expand your network, and get paid for powering those cities. Truthfully, I love the part of the game where players purchase power plants through bidding. This is where things can seriously escalate and or get hilariously funny when people start playing chicken or start being dicks to each other. There's a lot of posturing and trying to decipher if the next player will outbid you or fall for the trap so they grossly overpay for said power plant. Can you tell I love bidding games? If you don't like bidding games, this game will probably be not fun for you. In Power Grid, there's a market for eight power plants. The four with the lowest numbers are available to be bid on, while the other four can possibly slide into one of those slots. When it's a player's turn, they may pick a plant to bid on, and it goes around clockwise until the highest bidder wins. After the bidding round is over, and each player has purchased a power plant, or completely passed on one, another power plant card is flipped over from the stack, and this new card may be the one that slides into one of the four lower number plants. Power plants come in many different types, and they need those resources to run. The game comes with coal, oil, garbage, and uranium. There are also green power plants that require no resources to run. Those are pretty valuable, but here's where it gets tricky. The person with the fewest houses on the board gets to purchase resources first, and the cost of each resource gets more expensive as it becomes more scarce, and the resource market refills at different rates depending on how far along you're in the game. Resources can quickly get costly for the last person buying them. The next phase is building houses in cities, which is also done in reverse order. The player who has the most houses on the board will be going less, and also that can get really expensive if you're blocked from building in a particular city. To expand your network, you have to pay the connection fee between cities as well as the cost to place your house inside the city. The second cost gets more expensive as the game progresses because it allows other people to build in the same city. During the first phase of the game, only one player can build into a city, but eventually three different people will be allowed to. Skipping a city because you're unable to place a house there is costly, as you'll have to keep paying the connection fees until you hit an open space. Part of the gameplay is also blocking people to make it more expensive for them to build. It's very fun. Lastly, during the bureaucracy phase, players spend their resources to power their plants, and based on how many cities they power, they get income for that. The money is never quite enough to do all that you want to do in the next round. You may want to upgrade to a more efficient power plant that uses less resources, but everyone will also want that too and drive the power plant price up during the bidding. And whatever you want to do, you always seem to be a dollar short. Depending on the number of players, when a player builds a certain number of connecting cities, that triggers the end of the game. But, and this is huge, the person that can power the most cities at the end of that turn is the winner. 
A big element of Power Grid is turn order, especially when you're playing with a lot of players. Sometimes you want to be the first to pick a power plant and set its bid price. Sometimes you want to be able to purchase cheaper resources to run your power plants. Sometimes you want to be the first to put a house in a particular city. Timing is critically important in Power Grid. Having the most cities can be a disadvantage until it's not. And that's Power Grid. This is Meeple Lady for the Five By. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Despite having elements of purity and strategy to them, I've never been drawn to abstract board games. The themes of themed games can sometimes seem flimsy or pasted on when they are little more than window dressing for the nuts and bolts that lie beneath. One could argue that most board games are abstract, in a sense, and that all themes are pasted on. In my play experience, a game feels like a non-abstract as soon as I start thinking about the game in terms of what the theme is. Santorini is an abstract game that was originally self-published in 2004 by its designer Gordon Hamilton, also known as Gord. It's listed as 2-4 players, but is mostly intended as a 2-player game. Essentially, what you're doing is building towers and climbing them, and the object of the game is to be the first person to reach the third level of these buildings you've created throughout the game. All of the components of the self-published version, including the pawns, were wooden pieces painted white, so it had a very minimalist look to it. Years passed, and Santorini came back on the scene in 2016 with a new edition produced by Roxley Games, now available from Spin Master, with art by Lena Cossette and David Forrest. The new version has a, one could say pasted on, theme in which players play as ancient Greek gods and goddesses constructing the beautiful white and blue buildings of the Grecian island of Santorini. When Roxley initially ran the Kickstarter for the edition that is available today, I thought it seemed overproduced, so I backed at the print-and-play level and made my own mini version out of painted Bananagrams tiles. But the siren song of the full version quickly won me over, and I haven't looked back since. In the basic two-player game of Santorini, each player has two builders on a 5x5 grid. On your turn, you choose one of your builders and move them one space. Then you build, adding a level to any square adjacent to the builder you moved. There is a maximum of three levels upon which builders can be placed, with blue domes that can cap off any square that has reached three levels. During your movement of one space, you can choose to ascend a maximum of one level if it is possible for your builder to do so, or you can descend any number of levels. Once a building segment is in place, any player's builder may use it. You can block your opponent from being able to access the third level by using the build portion of your turn to place a dome onto the third level that they were about to reach, as long as your builder is within reach of that spot after their movement. Blocking various spots with domes and your builders themselves becomes an important part of the strategy of the game. Santorini can be played as is with the basic rules, or you can add variable player powers in the form of 40 different god cards. Each player gets one card at the beginning of the game that gives them a special rule-breaking ability that they can use to their advantage. For example, Atlas can build a dome on any level, Hephaestus can build two levels at once, and Athena can prevent her opponent from moving up on their next turn when she moves up on her turn. The god cards are rated as either simple or advanced. The simple cards can be helpful if you're just learning the game, 
playing with less experienced players or if you just want something more straightforward. The powers of these cards are meant to be balanced against one another, but they are also useful for customizing your games. Santorini is rated for ages 8 and up, so if you're playing a younger player, they could play with a simple card and you could play with an advanced card, or they could play with a card and you could play without a card. As far as representation goes, the god cards do have some diversity, but I would have liked to have seen even more. A game of Santorini can be as short as 15 minutes or so, depending on how much of a planner you are. There aren't a lot of complicated rules to go over every time you play, and while there are a lot of components, setup should be easy as long as you have each building type sorted into a bag. If your first game is too short to scratch the itch, trading god powers for a quick rematch is one of my favorite ways to play. My favorite feature of Santorini is its durable components and charming art. The grid itself is elevated by a large plastic piece that acts as the cliffs of Santorini. It sits atop a cardboard base depicting the coast, whose sole purpose is to look amazing. The plastic building pieces are some of the most durable components I've ever seen. The middle and bottom pieces are hard to tell apart, which is why it helps to keep the pieces organized. Once you start adding the domes, your island really starts to take on the look of Santorini. The builders are minis, which adds even more to the visuals. Even if you're not interested in painting the minis, the surrounding atmosphere is so appealing that it draws you in. In other words, Santorini is a great abstract for people who don't like abstracts. And if the Grecian theme doesn't grab you, watch out for a re-theme called Santorini New York that may be out later this year. You can find me on Instagram at d6cmarie. Thanks for listening. This has been The 5 by your five-stop shop for rapid-fire board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at 5 Games.com. If you like what we do here on the 5 by and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 5 Games. Thanks for listening and happy gaming. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.